Turn to Romans 11.36, if you would. And I'm just going to make a quick transition here into talking about um, part two of the Knowing God series. But we began last week on Easter, a new series um, called simply Knowing God. And uh, really this idea of we all yearn for and hunger for a relationship with God, but sometimes I think we'll go years and go, you know, I'm learning a lot about God or I'm kind of hanging around a lot of religious circles, but I don't know that I really feel like I'm growing in the grace and knowledge of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ or that I'm growing spiritually or that I'm becoming um, more intimate with God. And so we just wanted to stop and kind of speak to our relationship with God. And what I want to do is kind of frame this morning's talk with uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question. Now, the Westminster Catechism uh, was written in 1647 by what was called the Westminster Assembly, and it continues to serve as part of the doctrinal standards in the Presbyterian Church, uh, various branches of the Presbyterian Church, if you're from a Presbyterian background. But the question here, coming all the way from the 1600s, is simply this, what is the chief end of man? Um, and that's a great question. I remember being in college, even before I became a Christian, just wrestling with this, like, what's the purpose of life? I mean, anyone that's ever watched uh, Dead Poets Society, you know, you, you come away going, you know, what is, what is the meaning of life? And I like that they kind of hit right at it here in, with the Westminster um, Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. But when you look at that, you kind of, you kind of begin to ask yourself, well, what, is, what does glorify really mean? What does glory really mean? We heard it in some of the parent prayers as they were praying. They would say, and we pray that our son or our daughter would glorify you. And we go, oh, that sounds great, but what does it really mean? And, and to me, it's the absolute hallmark um, if we're going to understand what it, nope, yep, um, what, it's, uh, what it's supposed to look like as Christians. And so Romans 11.36, it's at the end of this doxology, this kind of prayer that um, Paul is doing in the book of Romans. And it simply says this, Oh, the depth of the, of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So you see it there again in this kind of hallmark verse in Romans. To him, uh, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Uh, Psalm 86, you can write this down and maybe in your small groups come back to it later. But Psalm 86 uh, says this. In uh, 86 verse 9 says this. All the nations that you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. All the nations will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. So what does it really mean to glorify God? I mean, really practically speaking. I remember when I started working at a church um, and we did this big kind of thing on the glory of God. And I remember sitting in a staff meeting one time and you never want me in a meeting that I'm not like, owning myself um, because I, I, I either take responsibility or I, or I wreck it for other people. I mean, but there's just really no middle ground, right? So in class, I wasn't always the best student for teachers. Um, 
but then if I have the responsibility of leading something, it's different. But so in this particular meeting, or a lot of them at that church, I was just sitting on the wings. But this whole conversation about glory, and then finally I just was like, what does that mean? What does it mean? They're like, what do you mean, what does it mean? I'm like, well, what does it mean? It's the thing we give God. That's what it means. And, and I'm and I kind of, but, but what is it that we're giving God? And, and so the pastor began to get a little frustrated. I'm like, no, I, I just want to hear from people. What does glory mean? And so I kind of hijacked the meeting and we start brainstorming what glory means. And someone's like, it's a Corvette, you know, and someone says it's a, it's a sunrise or someone says it's beauty or someone says it's, you know, but we began to throw out words and say, what does it really mean if, if we kind of get at this sense of glory that we're going to ascribe to God or that we're, uh, that's kind of going to be at the heart of glorifying God. And I still think when we got all the way around it, it's a hard thing to really pin down. It's a hard thing to really figure out what does it mean to glorify God. So if you'll turn to Isaiah, I want to kind of show you a bit how, how I've unpacked this for myself. Isaiah um, chapter 42 it's, it's a marvelous chapter. I, I actually have been torn with the idea of what would it look like to do a series on the book of Isaiah that wouldn't go on for 10 years. But, but it's just, there's so many things in Isaiah. If, if you've been around in churches long enough, it's just one of those books that seems to always work its way into different sermons because there's just so much packed in here. But Isaiah 42, I want to read a little bit of a chunk so that you can get the context. But Isaiah 42, verse 1, this is one of these passages that speaks to the coming Messiah. And here it's called the servant of the Lord. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. When I talk about um, justice in the gospel, and and you've heard me talk about a little bit that there's still a real raging debate out there that justice is an okay thing, but let's be very careful that we don't slip that into the gospel and distract people away from from what the good news of salvation is really about. And I'm trying to say, no, you can't understand Jesus' work of bringing salvation without reference to justice. And this is one of those passages that that this is my servant, the one um, whom I've chosen, whom I delight, and I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shut, uh, shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth, and in his law the islands will put their hope. This is what the sovereign Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and now new things I declare. Before those things even spring into being, I announce them to you. So what's going on here? Um, the suffering servant who's, who's going to preach good news, who's anointed, who's going to bring a light even to the Gentiles. In other words, the good news is going to go out to all people. It's, it's about 
God bringing justice and making things right in this world. The broken things of this world, uh, world being fixed, put back in place as they ought to be. This is the work he proclaims the Messiah will do. And then God says, I'm God. I'm the one that created. Just like Paul said, all things are from me and through me and to me. I'm the one that has done everything that you see. So on the weight of that, I declare to you, this will happen. I declare it to you before it has even happened so that you will know that I am proclaiming to you what my intentions are and I will make good on my intentions just like I've done the former things that I told you. So this is what's going on. And in the middle of this, um, God says, I am the Lord that is my name, and I will not, and, and the newer version of the NIV says yield, I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. I'm, I'm standing here on the weight of, of who I am. I'm standing here on my name and my reputation and my integrity saying that what I'm decreeing will, will be, it is firm, just as everything else I have decreed and done has been established. And I will not yield at all. I will let no other story take priority over my story. I will let no other person decree a decree above or beyond or over what I have decreed. I will, I will let nobody have this position of declaring truth to you. Does that make sense? So glory, the glory of God, I think we try and find adjectives to describe beauty and majesty, but I think the better way of, of looking at it is that the glory of God is really about truth and falsehood. It's really about truth and falsehood. God saying that here I stand, I will not yield my glory, that this is fixed and this is uh, firm and my name will not be compromised. He's really saying in integrity, I won't allow a falsehood to take place, which is for me to be moved out of the primary spot and for some other narrative to kind of hold sway. I, I won't allow that falsehood to, to take place. And, and not only will I not allow the falsehood, but I'm declaring that I won't yield the truth. The truth of who I am, the truth of what I've done, the truth of what I will do, and ultimately, and this is what's really important, the truth of the, the motive or heart behind what I'm doing. I'm, try, I'm trying to bring justice to the nations. I'm trying to bring healing to the broken. And, and I, I'm really ultimately working this good plan. And yes, people will question me. And yes, people will, will suffer pain in this world. And yes, there will be a lot of other things, but that does not change the truth of, of what my heart is in my plan. So in people's pain or in people's suffering, that doesn't mean that we have to change the narrative or story because something's broken or somehow I'm not to be trusted, or, or my word is incredible. So here I stand, and I won't yield. And so the glory of God is really about everything being in alignment in, in truth and falsehood. And it helps, I think, when we understand that, um, to understand disobedience. Because disobedience is something we don't know how to talk about. We know that it's all over Scripture, but then when we know when we talk about disobedience, it feels really legalistic and it doesn't really feel like it's working. And so then we're like, well, let's not talk about disobedience. Let's just talk about other things. But then if you don't talk about um, that God has opinions and has a plan and that we're supposed to follow, I mean, it just gets all jumbled up. 
So we have to learn how to talk about disobedience again. But it's simply this. When you have a plan and your plan is good and you can control your plan and you're in authority, disobedience is really annoying. Parents know this. When, when you know what is um, best for your kids and your kids will not obey you or, or continue to challenge that authority, you get really bothered by that. If they begin to be deceptive about it and sneaky and go in a whole pattern of it, you really see it as a threat, not only to your authority or your name, but a threat to what is supposed to be, what your desires are, what, what, is, what you've kind of decreed over your family when you're saying we're going to be this kind of family. And so disobedience challenges authority because what disobedience says is that although I'm supposed to be yielding to you, following you, I refuse to yield and I'm going to go this way. And not only that, but by doing so, I force you or I'm, I'm kind of daring you to yield to my direction my plan, um, my disobedience, my rebellion. Does that make sense? So when, when we're supposed to yield in obedience and we don't, we go away. Um, scripture will talk about the Israelites being wayward or wandering or in rebellion, all of these kinds of things. What we're really saying is we expect you, God, to come into alignment with us. We don't want a God that's made in our own image, not when we're debating with our atheist friends, but practically speaking, when we're choosing the direction we want to go, we, we actually do want to make you in our own image, God. And we want you to follow us and to maybe bless us and to approve of what we're doing, but, but we want to be out in front. And so we kind of expect you to yield. And God is saying, I will not yield. Rally to me. I'm fixed I'm in the center. Um, my dog, I'll show you my dog. Um, that's Peaches. So that's the bench because she's short. Um, she stands there perched so that she can see when people are walking by the fence. And then she'll run from there to the fence and start barking like a vicious attack dog in a really high-pitched bark from a little dog. And... Uh, and this has been a, a problem in my life for years. Um, I, was, I actually wasn't going to say this. I'm looking to my wife. She doesn't know what I was going to say. Um, if you are an animal lover, please take this in context. Um, we were really worried about our, our neighbors and, and, and people had called on our little dog. I mean, we were getting the police called on our little dog. You know what I mean? But it was so bad, so we got a bark collar. Um, I would sense repent of that, um, again, if you're an animal lover. But she wasn't really smart enough for the bark collar. The bark collar purpose is it, 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 it gives you a gentle reminder <laughs> to glorify your master by, by being obedient um, and not barking. But we had a bunch of interns over. This is maybe three years ago. Um, and we had a bunch of interns over. The bark collar was new. And she ran to the fence to start barking, and it started shocking her which made her yelp, which made it shock her, which made her yelp more. And she started literally like bouncing around the yard as the thing was shocking her. And I, I was worried that smoke was coming out of her. But it was, so, it was so horrifying that these interns were looking at me and saying, I came to Antioch for justice. 
Um, what, what is this? Um, and so I, I actually thought she was going to die of a heart attack. We finally chased her around the yard. I mean, we couldn't catch up to her. Um, and, and since then, um, I've repented of bark collars. But so here's what happens when the dog goes and barks at the, at the fence. It's, it's, it's not okay. It's, it's annoying, but it's also just not okay. It's not friendly to the people walking by the fence. Um, it's not appropriate. It's not what I desire. And so you, you, you try to challenge it. And you, you, you yell. You start yelling at Peaches. You know, Peaches, shush, stop barking. You know, you're yelling. And then you want to put some inflection into your voice. And so you get your stern voice going. And then you're like, you know, Peaches, shush, stop barking. You know, and you're like yelling. And then the, the little old lady walking across, you know, on the sidewalk over there is like wondering, you know, isn't that that pastor? And little kids are like going away around our house. Like that guy's really mean, you know, and then you feel bad. So you start doing it in a hushed voice and, and, and that doesn't do any good. And you start banging on the sliding glass door. And, and then at night, it's really hard. Sometimes put her out at like 11. She'll start barking like crazy, waking up the neighbors. And I'm trying to think which is louder, like me yelling at her or her barking in, you know, at 11 o'clock. It's just really frustrating. She's disobedient. What I've learned about um, disobedience through peaches um, is, is simply this. Um, you can punish or you can forgive, but, you'll, but with, with disobedience, you're not going to follow. So this is just a simple illustration with this dog. I'm like, I can forgive the dog. I can punish the dog but I'm not gonna bend and yield to the dog and say, it's now somehow okay. Um, and I think God's the same way with us when we disobey. God looks at us and says, listen, I can punish or I can forgive, but I'm not gonna follow. I'm not gonna yield to that. Turn to Isaiah 48. It's a couple pages over, Isaiah 48. You see God doing almost the same thing, setting up the same kind of a formula of, of what is going to happen and then kind of saying uh, in verse 6, um, you have heard these things, look at them, will you not admit them? From now on I will tell you of new things, of hidden things. So you see the same formula going on that happened in chapter 42, but then it comes to this, um, verse 9, for my own namesake I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. Forgiveness, patience. See, I have refined you, though, as not, uh, no, though not as uh, with silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction, punishment. So you see both of them here. You see forgiveness and you see punishment. And then it says in verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Do you see that? It's pretty profound stuff. When God is dealing with disobedience, he looks at it and he can be patient or he can forgive or he can punish and judge, but he will not follow. God will not yield to it. How could he? It would be untrue and it would be false. I mean, just a side note, theologically speaking, if you really want to wrap your mind around it, um, 
it would be as if God is saying something else is bigger than God. Does that make sense? So if God says, I'm gonna allow something else to hold sway, it's as, as if God is now worshiping an idol. Does that make sense? It's, it's God profaning his own name. It's God injuring truth because he's allowing something else to be exalted higher than the highest thing. So God in, in some strange way would be doing the very thing that he's saying you cannot do and have things still work correctly. Um, so just theologically. But so God can punish, God, God can forgive, but God can't follow. So this is why when we study theology, we have to begin to look at something a little different because theology is really about truths that shape our lives. Truths that shape our lives. These are things that when we, we come to the study of God, theology proper, when we come to learn about God, we're learning things that necessarily ought to shape or, 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 um, or direct our life. They're truths that shape our lives. Um, theology is not just this kind of distinct subject like I want to go study um, biology on the Galapagos Islands. Why? Well, I really like animals and I really like the subject of biology and I think I can write some good papers. But it, it, that's this nice dis, uh, distinct distant subject uh, that you can go study, but it might have nothing to do with your marriage or the way you raise your kids or how you spend your money. Does that make sense? Like a distinct, separate, distant subject. When we're studying God, we have to realize we're not studying God as if we're doing it that way. Let me go learn about biology in the, on the Galapagos Islands. Why? Because it's really interesting stuff. Religion is really cool. I want to I wanna find out more about religion. We're not studying something that way. When we study God, we're, we're as adopted children going looking for our, our, our birth parents. There's never been an adopted child looking for a birth parent where that, that pursuit didn't somehow radically affect and shape their understanding of, of personal identity. Does that make sense? That that pursuit of, of knowing or finding or learning about a birth parent or, or sets of parents, it, it, it shapes our thinking. It shapes our self-understanding. So the Richard Baxter quote was simply this. Richard Baxter was a Puritan and he said, nothing can be rightly known if God be not known, nor is any study well managed, uh, nor to any great purpose if God is not studied. That somehow this, this is this key central thing that shapes every other thing that we study. That if God really stands at, at the center and then we key off of that, we really have to understand God to understand how we should be relating to God or to each other. So this isn't a distant or distinct subject that we study. Let me um, just read you the book that we're kind of going through as a church, uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, kind of a famous Christian book. He says these two things. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Uh, he also says, our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, studying it as if it were distinct or distant, uh, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. Um, so what we come to find is that when we really get down to 
Understanding God, when I, I mean, I knew a lot about God and a lot about Christianity before age 22 when I would tell you I, I came to have a relationship with God. And this was at the, the back end of four years of being at Clemson and being an atheist and then an agnostic and then being told by doctors that, that I really had to rethink my life and trying to figure out how does that really matter. You know, if there is no God, maybe it doesn't matter. Um, I'll just keep living the way I'm living. But if there is a God, I don't know, it seems like maybe that would matter. So let me figure out that question first and then I'll tackle my health and some of these other things. And so I started reading the Gospel of John in this book that my mom had sent. I called her, I said, send me a book on why you think I should be a Christian. And she sent me a book. So I had this Bible that she'd sent me away to college with and so I was reading in the Gospels and then reading this other book um, by Josh McDowell, a little book called More Than Carpenter. Anyone know of it? So I'm reading, I'm reading these things um, and I'm thinking a lot about do I believe that God exists? And then my experience is that one night all of a sudden it was as if God were there. And it was like, well, hi, God. I guess that whole philosophizing every night, staying up till three in the morning, wrestling with with issues of the resurrection or how could this be or whatever. I guess that conversation's kind of over now because here you are. That was my experience. It was a week later that I made a commitment to pursue ministry full-time um, with my life. It started as a very scary, like, boy, maybe I should go um, on missions to some faraway land. And then, and then I realized, oh, maybe I could go work at a Christian summer camp, make a little money, hang out with people my age, and that would count as, like, with that thing that I felt like God put on my heart. So I did, and I actually think it was the right thing. I would have messed up some countries if I'd have gone anywhere. Um, uh, and then out of that first summer at that, that camp is when I made the decision to pursue schooling, seminary, grad school to really go into ministry full time. Like I didn't ever, I mean, I didn't grow up going, oh, I want to be a pastor because they, they're just as cool as sports stars. You know, like that's not the way we hold pastors in society. Um, I went that way because out of this recognition that God exists and that if he exists and if he's making himself known to me, then I, there's really nothing else I can say other than, God, what do you want me to do? Like, my life belongs to you. You made me. All things are from, through, and to. I, so where are we going with this? Where are we going tomorrow? Where are we going for a career? Where are we going? And so that's a sloppy unworking over time of figuring it out. But it all began with a very clear, distinct realization that my life is not my own. And that this question of, of who God is, when, when we come to approach God, now all of a sudden becomes not who is he in a distinct, distant way, but him as the sovereign God who will not yield his glory to another, saying to me or to us, this is the will I have for your life. Either general will, that you would live rightly, that you would pursue justice, that you would have humility, that you would be a part of a spiritual community, that you would, I mean, the general things, or more specifically, that at times God does when he, he directs or steers you, say, I want you to go this direction with your career or I want you to change your finances, or I want you to move your family, but that that's really 
the searching out that we're doing, once we understand who God is, that, that our study of God, theology, shapes everything about our life. So the greatest question I think you could ask this morning um, would be to go somewhere where it's quiet after church or even there in, in the quietness of your own mind and just put your hands out. Um, because this is what I, I think we don't do in American Christianity. Let's put our hands out and say, I'm holding nothing back. I'm all in, God. So, so now you tell me what. What we tend to do in American Christianity, and I know this by experience from, from before I feel like I came to really know God, or, or being around youth groups, or being a youth pastor, or just all of it, is that we tend to do this. We put a lot out, and we hold something back. It's like in a poker game, um, because it's a good analogy, so um, forgive me if poker's bad. But uh, in poker, you go all in. If you're really going to trust, or if you're really going to have faith, if you're really going to leverage, you go all in, meaning if you, if, if you lose or you fail, you're out, you're done, it's over. And we treat faith that way, it's like, I want to go all in, but I'm going to hedge my bets, meaning I'm, I'm not going to put all my chips in. I'm going to hold a couple of good ones back because ultimately if I, if I was wrong in putting my trust in God, if somehow I fail by, by this kind of Christian thing, I won't completely lose because I've held on to this. So God, you can have my Sunday mornings, but I'm going to pick who I'm going to marry um, because that really matters. Or God, you can, I, you can have my language and my obedience to a whole lot of things, but money, I'm going to make sure I get enough of it. I'm going to figure out where I want to get it, and I'm going to keep enough of it for myself because I learned from my parents that security really matters and that that's the only thing you can really trust is having the rainy day fund or, or whatever it might be. Or God, I'll serve you, but I'm going to do it amongst the rich because then um, it'll then I'm supposed to play with toys, you know, because it's outreach, you know, like, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend a lot of money, but I'm gonna go try and reach the rich people because the rich people need you too, God. So, I, you know, that way when I'm on my boat or I'm on the whatever, like, I'm, I'm doing your will, but I'm deciding how, and I'm deciding it in a way that's gonna kind of fit with what I already want. It's work out great, God, trust me. Like, it's, I, it's a wonderful plan all to your glory and my comfort. But we, we go, oh, I'm gonna hold a couple back. And that's why Jesus looked at that. I mean, when Jesus said to the rich young ruler, like, give away all your money, he wasn't talking to a guy that probably had a family or kids. He probably wasn't talking to, he was talking to a guy that Jesus is like, I know what your besetting issue is. There's one thing that you're holding back that you, you will not let go of. And you're pressing me to find out how you're going to have a relationship with God? Okay, I'll go there with you. Give away your money. I'm going to show you that you're holding something in reserve. I'm going to show you you're holding something back. And the guy goes away sad and Jesus shook his head and says, it's really hard for people to go all in, especially if they have a lot to lose. Right? It's, 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 it's easier to go all in when you have nothing. That's why rock bottom is a great place to start a journey of faith. It really is. 
but it's, but it's easy. It's hard when you can hold things back. So one of the greatest things you could do today, tomorrow, this week, is just, is just go, okay, God, I'm going to pray. I want to go all in. I'm going to put it in. And if you're being honest with yourself, because I've prayed this prayer a thousand times, there's a really, there's a recess 50,000 leagues deep in your heart where when you go to pray that prayer, you're, you're pulling back and, and putting qualifications on it. God, I want to go all in, but I don't know that I really trust what you're going to say back to me. I'm going to go all in, but I don't know. I kind of know that it would have to be in this box for me to really embrace it, depending on what you say. Or God, I'm going to go all in, but um, I don't know that I really trust you. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm scared. I'm lonely in life. Like I've got difficulties. Um, I do know what pain feels like. I, I don't, I'm, I'm hurting. I don't know that I'm even a leader. Like, what, I, I, can I really trust you to care for me, to, to catch me, to be a rock, to be, like, and, and so what you'll find is if you go to pray that prayer, um, it's really hard to get past the first wave and say yes and extend your arms all the way out. And as scared as you are, as frightened as you are because you're like, man, it's this or bust. You do it because you trust God. And you might find that he says, great. I don't want you to change anything in your life. I just wanted to see if you were willing to follow me. Or great, you know that thing you've been trying to get, like you've been trying to become successful at this and you've been finding it hard? Um, it's gonna be easier now because I actually want that for you because it'll help with X, Y, Z. But I needed you to follow me into that not do it on your own apart from me. Are you, are you hearing me? It's, trust and faith is really simple to comprehend. It's incredibly hard to submit to or yield to. But when we understand the glory of God, we understand that God is not gonna yield to us. He's not gonna follow us. That his glory is a commitment to truth and to standing in this position to being strong and to not embracing falsehood. And so it forces us to say, as awkward as it is, I'm gonna bend into God. I'm willing to follow him. So what does it look like if we get this wrong? What happens when we make all things from, through, and to ourselves? Because that's really what selfishness is, right? All things are from, through, and to me. What happens when we make it all about ourselves? So turn to Zechariah 7.6. It might take you a little while. Um, it's uh, in the Minor Prophets. It's on page 738 in my Bible. Um, it's a little bit before Matthew. So if you just want to go to Matthew, the Gospels, and just go left a little bit, it's one of the, the later uh, books in the Old Testament. Um, but Zechariah, again, we see God interacting with his people. And I think we see something really interesting because we see justice come up again. We see mercy come up again. Again, you're not, hearing my plan, you're trying to bend a different way and I'm not gonna let that happen. But so this is how it's described. Um, verse, let's just start in verse four. So then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me and he says, ask all the people of the land and the priests, the religious people, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? This is Zechariah 7, Verse four, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh, uh, seventh months 
for the past 70 years. Was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? Um, and then the word of the Lord came to me again. He says, is this what the Lord Almighty says? Administer true justice. Show mercy, uh, mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. Do not think of the immigrant in America, they're gonna take your jobs or that they must be doing drugs or that they're really evil people because they probably came here illegally or they must be, don't think evil in your hearts of the alien. We do this, don't we? When we think of only ourselves. So do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien, the immigrant, the stranger, or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit to the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. God will not bend. If we go a different way, he will forgive or he will punish, but he will not yield or follow to our plan. He says, this is my plan, that you would purify your hearts. What do you have that was not given to you? What, did, did any one of us here earn our nationality? I didn't. The only person I know in my life that did was my dad. My dad was an immigrant. He earned his nationality here. He studied for it. Um, I didn't earn it. All things for me, even my personality, even um, the education that my parents valued for me that I, that I totally took advantage of for years. How many of you had the same thing? Your parents drug you along in education until you finally woke up. Like everything that I have has been given to me somehow. God has this plan and, and the good things that come, we can trace it. They're not from us. They're from him and they're through him and ultimately they're to him. He gets the glory. His plan of goodness, not just for me, but for all of us is what he's standing on and working toward and I bend to that. And if I harden my heart as flint and say, I'm gonna go bark at the fence. I'm gonna be disobedient. I'm gonna ignore you. I'm gonna do whatever it is. God can either punish me or he can forgive me, but he's never gonna bend to me and say, oh, that's a good plan. It's really good if, if you take over here and make it all about you. That's gonna work out just wonderful. You're gonna, you're gonna love the results there. He's not gonna bend to me. And so when we feast, it says, even if we dress it up spiritually as Christians, even if we baptize it in all sorts of wonderful ways, God's saying, what are you really doing with all that spirituality? At the end of the day, that feasting, are you not just eating and drinking for yourselves? Is our Christianity at the end really how we're dressing ourselves up because we like what it does for us? Is it really somehow just about me at the end of the day? Or are my hands all the way out, extended? God, it's all yours. I'll walk by faith, not by sight. I'll submit to your desires. I'll, I'll even, as scary as it is, please help me because my heart is weak, I'll, I'll give up some of my dreams. 
or I'd be willing to walk into places that might make me feel uncomfortable. I mean, think about that. Um, been thinking about this for a year. Uh, I've, I've had, you know, I've had a tough week, let alone year. And at one point, I called a friend of mine and, um, who works for World Vision now, Don Golden. And I was talking to Don, and Don laughs at me. And I said, what are you laughing at me for? And he goes, well, and I said, hold on a second, because I was in Starbucks drive-thru, order Starbucks. Start driving again. And, I, and I'm like, all right, what, what, what gives? Why are you laughing at me? What do you know that I don't know? And he goes, Ken, did you really think that you were going to be able to change the world without a little opposition or suffering? And I kind of thought to myself, you know, I think maybe I did. It was a lot, it's, it kind of all started out as just a lot of fun. A lot of great people at Antioch with good hearts that want to care about truth and so, so let's go do it. And, and, and it, it was really fun. And, but yeah, you're right. Maybe I should realize that trying to follow God and be a part of his plan means that there's going to be some pain or suffering, or that's going to lead me into some areas that aren't comfortable. For you to raise your kids the way you want to raise them, for you to take care of your kids or your grandkids the way you want to take care of them, for you to see change in Bend is not for you to email Ken Weitzman and say, we need to change Bend. It's really about this. God, if you want to use me to change Bend, all that I have is yours. All that I am is yours. I'm scared. I'm weak. But if you lead, I will follow. If I get astray, please gently let me know. I'd rather have the gentle than the hard punishment. But please, please let me know so that I can fix that. Because my desire really is to follow you. And God will begin to put people on your heart. So that Instead of going to the movies, you're driving to someone's house and you're dropping off a gift. Uh, instead of going and doing leisure activities, you begin to find, wow, I can get involved in this nonprofit or even in city, local, council, government, whatever. But dang, if it doesn't take all my time. All my hobbies seem to have just gone out the window. Um, when all the guys talk about their hobbies, it's kind of awkward now. I don't have anything to say. But you know what? I kind of think I'm in the right place. I don't know what it will look like. But no matter what, it's all by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, says Hebrews. So let's close. I'll just read you these verses. When we let that take root in our life, that's the beginning of the kingdom of God. So Matthew 21, 43 says this, therefore I will tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. If you wanna know what the kingdom of God looks like, it looks like fruit being born by persons in churches that, that somehow both individually and corporately, there's something multiplying that is good. Multiplication that is good, fruit. The parable of the growing seed, Mark 4, 26, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, it doesn't matter what he do, the seed sprouts and grows. It is meant to multiply, to flourish, to grow, though he does not know how. 
All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. The kingdom of God is when we let the message of God take root and little by little in your life, in your family's life, in the, in the life of this community or this church, it, it just grows. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who makes it grow. Growth, spiritual growth and health is a part of what the kingdom of God is. The parable of the mustard seed. What shall we say the kingdom of God is like, says Jesus? What parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. If all of us are thinking about how to feast in such a way that we're really only eating and drinking for ourselves, or if we're all trying to figure out in a subtle way how to dress ourselves up spiritually, but in a way that really serves our needs, there will be no growth. But if we all come together by faith, you see the unity comes around God as we all attach to God or seek to submit to or follow God, that that brings about a unity and a spiritual health where he's able to direct our efforts and little by little in the craziest of ways, things begin to happen and grow and it's exciting. It's exciting. I talk a lot about tithing. I talk more about not wanting to talk about tithing than I ever do about tithing. And I think here's what I'm learning. I want people to give of their time, their energy, their money, whatever it is. I want them to give of it out of desire because they see the kingdom of God growing. And when you see a cool bonfire, you're like grabbing wood from everywhere. And when we were in the fraternity, if the fire was really going well, after a while, we're like ripping wood off of, of cabin homes. And you know what I mean? Like it's it's like that fire has to keep going bigger, bigger. And you just are taking wood from everywhere because that matters. And I want, I want the kingdom of God to grow in our midst in such a way that we're not thinking about the check boxes or our duty or whatever, but that there's a desire there. And so I, I'm always like, if I have to teach into it, I don't know, it feels like goading. And the kingdom of God is all about energy and growth and excite me. And so what does it mean to glorify God and enjoy him forever? I think it means this, to take him as he is, to orient oneself accordingly and experience the fullness of spiritual life that God desires for his children. What does it mean to glorify God and enjoy him forever? To take him as he is, please say that back, to take him as he is, to orient oneself accordingly, to orient oneself accordingly and experience the fullness of spiritual life God desires for his children. Amen. Thank you.